This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. You can turn there in your Bible if you brought that along with you this morning. It also begins on page 724 in the Bibles in your rows and is also printed in your bulletin. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come up on you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe the these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we begin a new series which we are calling Remembering. That is, how can something that's been dismembered uh, be put back together and have new life? And it's kind of a cute graphic, uh, don't you think? I mean, who doesn't like Lego minifigures? Except when you're sort of stepping on them, I suppose. Those of you parents might know what that's like. But it's actually a much more uh, pleasant image than the one we get in the passage that Abby just read to us in Ezekiel, you know, Pastor Brian originally had uh, a concept for the art in this series that was going to be much like this, except it was a a doll that had been (laughs) torn asunder in like a dirty, dusty field. It was very spooky and uh, probably would have given you nightmares. Uh, It would have probably matched a little bit more of Ezekiel 37, um, but we didn't want to spook you out uh, too much. So this is a little bit nicer to think about. Uh, Remembering. In a year plus, where we have been dismembered, disoriented, pulled apart, what does it mean to come back together? 
What does it mean to do life together? What does it mean to rehabituate ourselves to the practices of gospel community? What does it mean to be the body of Christ during and after a pandemic? And this morning, what I want to do is really just kind of set the stage for this series, to give you the, the image, to give you the metaphor, and then all the rest of the series, we're actually going to sort of walk through the practicality. So this morning, we're going to be in Ezekiel to give you the image, to give you the picture, and then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty in Romans chapter 12 to 16 and walk out what those practices of being put back together, what does it look like to be in gospel community? And that's going to take us all the way to Thanksgiving. But this morning, we're going to look at the, the vision First of all, the valley of dry bones and what this image, what this metaphor is about. Then secondly, we're going to talk about the two things that have to happen in this text for the bones to live, to come together and to to have new life. And then finally, we're going to sit with a, a word of hope that's in the text as well. All right, so let's take a look at it that way this morning. So first, the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel uh, was a prophet in Babylon in the land of exile. Now, why were the Israelites in Babylon? Well, God had originally given the Israelites absolutely everything. One commentator explains it this way. When God brought Israel together, he said, everything I'm giving you is a gift, your land, your national identity, your freedom. I gave it to you. So if you turn away from me and away from my sustaining hand, you will lose everything. But they did turn away from him and they did lose everything. They were invaded by the Babylonians, 586 BC. They were taken into exile. They had no hope of a future. And yet, God, through Ezekiel, gives them a picture of resurrection. And this image of resurrection was not only a hope and a strength to them in ancient Israel, but it can be a hope and a strength for us as well. So let's think about it. All right? The vision, verses 1 to 3. A hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. I remember exactly where I was 20 years ago yesterday. Maybe you do too. I was with my dad and my brother on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We were moving all of my stuff in the back of a U-Haul trailer, towing behind the car to move me to New Jersey for graduate school. We blew a tire in Pennsylvania. We stopped to get it fixed, and in the gas station there was a television, and we saw the World Trade Center smoking. And eventually we did make it to New Jersey later that day, and as we pulled in to New Jersey and up through Princeton, we could see up Route 1 north, and we could see the smoke from the towers, even that far down in Jersey. A week or so later, I went with a group of campus ministry students from Crew to go to New York City to help small businesses clean up, clean the dust and the dirt and the ash off the buildings, off the windows. I still remember how eerie that was to be there just six or seven days after 9-11, to be in this huge, enormous, normally bustling global city, and it was eerily quiet. There were some people there, but everybody talked in hushed tones. It felt very much like a cemetery. And I bring this up because that's the closest thing in my experience to what I imagine it must have been like for Ezekiel, to walk in a place so full of death, so full of destruction. He sees a valley of death, a valley of dry bones. 
what looks like the remains of a catastrophic battle. And maybe this is something that he had actually seen before, perhaps on the roads outside of Jerusalem as he's being carted off to Babylon in exile. But he sees all of this, and then in verse 3, God asks him a question. Son of man, can these bones live? Put yourself in his place for a moment. There you are, standing in the middle of the biggest accumulation of death that you can imagine. And the question is, is there life? Can there be life? Will there be life? The obvious answer is no. But Ezekiel knows who he's talking to. It's the God of the universe. And so in about as good of an answer as I could possibly imagine mustering up in that moment, by the way, this is a good way to answer anything you don't know the answer to, right? He says, "Uh, can these bones live? Oh, Lord, you know. (laughs) This is a good way to answer when you don't know. Oh, Lord God, you know. Now, we're not left to wonder what all this means. Verse 11 makes clear that this is all a metaphor. This is uh, uh, meant to be a picture, not just for Ezekiel, but for all of Israel to understand. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And that's the predicament of Israel. They feel like a valley of dry bones. Remember, they had been invaded. They had been conquered. They had been stripped of their homes, their livelihoods, their freedom. In many cases, their families. The world feels to them like one huge cemetery. And they say, our hope is lost. And they understand this event through the lens of a broken covenant with God. They say, we are indeed cut off. And that phrase, cut off, it's, it's pregnant with meaning. It's covenant language. To be cut off is the curse of the covenant, the penalty for disobedience, for turning away from God. And to be cut off then is to be cut off from the center of the universe, to be cut off from the God who is the source of all life, the source of their identity, the source of their hope and their purpose and their meaning in this world. Very much harkens back to the early pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned, they were cast out, they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. They were cut off from the tree of life. And in that sense, then, the experience of exile is not just Israel's story, It's the story of the whole human race. As we rebel against God, we experience exile from the life that we were meant to have in fellowship with him. We are cut off like coals taken out of the fire, burning out. Now, if that is the bigger cosmic exile, you might say, well, there are lots of other small exiles that we experience in this world. Anytime we're pulled apart, anytime we're cut off from those places where we flourish, where we're meant to to live. For many of us, the last 18 months or so has felt like a kind of exile, hasn't it? Pulled apart from life together in community. Some have lost jobs. Some have lost family or friends. It's not just the pandemic. My friend Ray Kanata is preaching on the same text this morning in New Orleans And one-third of his congregation will be there to worship Redeemer New Orleans. The other two-thirds are still displaced because of a lack of power, damage to homes because of the hurricane. They're torn apart, literally, as a congregation. I had just a meeting with Todd Guckenberger, the director of Back to Back Ministries, an orphan care ministry. 
a few weeks ago, and he told me uh, that an estimated 1.5 million children around the world lost their primary caregiver, a parent or a grandparent, during the pandemic, multiplying the needs of orphans around the world, the numbers of orphans around the world. And the pulling apart isn't all just physical either. We know our country is incredibly partisan. I don't know if it's the most partisan we've ever been, but it's certainly the most partisan in recent years. In February, the Survey Center on American Life released a new poll that revealed, I think you all agree, are disturbing findings. Roughly a third of Americans said that it's at least a little justified for their side to use violence in advancing political goals. One out of three. And that, by the way, goes across the spectrum of ideologies, not just left, not just right. One-third thinks it's at least a little justified to use violence. The church hasn't escaped that kind of partisanship either. Rather than in Christ holding us together like we were singing earlier, instead we've divided and sorted along ideological lines. It feels very much like a dismembering, a pulling apart. Can these bones live? And what would it look like if they could Well, the text goes on, and uh, Chris Wright titles this next section in his uh, commentary, he calls it From Rigor Mortis to Resurrection, and that's really what you see in the vision that Ezekiel gets. Verse 4, Ezekiel says, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. This resurrection, this remembering of the dry bones, we see here is a two-stage operation, a two-stage process. God says first to Ezekiel, he says, you need to preach to the bones. He asks Ezekiel, a preacher by trade, to preach to the bones. And that's a daunting task. Everyone who's ever preached or spoken to a group of people, you know the challenge of speaking and thinking there's nobody who's really listening. Now, that's usually just insecurity talking, but in Ezekiel's case, he's really preaching where there's no one listening. It's literal dead people. It's, it's bones. That's his call. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And I do want you just to note here, uh, there's no secret incantation that God asks Ezekiel to perform. No light shows, no smoke machines, no hype, no spectacle, no conjuring tricks, just the living power of the word of God invading the valley of the shadow of death. We can only be put back together. We can only be rehabituated into our calling as the people of God when we hear and receive and sit under and are changed by the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Preach to the bones. But notice, though, well, it is miraculous what happens, right? There's a rattling, it says. Some translations say it was an earthquake. And then verse 7, the bones come back together. But at this point, I mean, it's miraculous, but but it's it's not the end you were hoping for. At this point, the bones are back together, but you don't have new life. It says there in... At the, in verse 8, but there was no breath in them. So you have the beginnings of maybe a horror movie. You don't exactly have a revival at this point yet. And so God doesn't just say, preach to the bones. He says, secondly, pray for the wind. 
Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So Ezekiel now is not talking to the bones anymore. Instead, he's calling out for the breath. He's calling out for the wind. And in Hebrew, it's the word ruach. You can almost, it sounds like breath, doesn't it? Ruach. It's used 10 times in this passage. Verse 1, verse 14, the beginning and end of the passage, it's the Spirit of God. That word means ruach. But it can also mean breath in a straightforward literal sense, as in verse 5, 6, 8, and 10. It has the connotation of wind in verse 9. Literally, the word just means air in motion, but it can refer to the wind that animates your life and also to the Spirit of God who imparts all breath, all life. The preaching of the Word can only do so much. It's the Holy Spirit that has to come and to quicken people to new life. Ezekiel here is told to ask the Spirit for the miracle of recreation. We said earlier that the Valley of Dry Bones pointed us back to Genesis 3, but this image goes even further back. It goes back to Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam. Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed Adam, the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That too, the original creation, is also a two-stage operation. God fashions the man out of dust of the earth, but then in a tender act of intimacy, God breathes into human nostrils the breath of life so that the man becomes a living being. The recreation of Israel in Ezekiel is a rerun of the original creation in Genesis 2. The preaching brings the bones back together, but it's only the Holy Spirit can make them come alive. And you know, Jesus spent three years preaching God's word. Nobody did it better than Jesus preaching to the disciples. But when they found themselves in their own valley of the shadow of death, locked away in the upper room, the resurrected Jesus comes to them. And in John chapter 20, it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord of life, freshly risen from the dead, freshly risen to life from where he lay among the bones, adopts the posture of the prophet Ezekiel in summoning the breath of God and the posture of God himself in sending the Holy Spirit to come and to animate his disciples. Do you want revival? Do you want renewal? Do you want remembering to be put back together? What do we need for that to happen? We need the word of God to be proclaimed And we need the Holy Spirit to come in power. And for the last, I don't know, a couple years, I guess, and one of the other pastors can tell you how long, year or two, we've had two little post-it notes up here in the pulpit. Some of you have seen these. That's one on here on the left that says, uh, tear tear a little corner off the darkness. That's just Bono. It's a U2 quote. The other one, though, has a little bit more authority. It's Ezekiel, preach to the bones, pray for the wind. Preach to the bones, pray for the wind. That's what we are trying to do here when we gather together. That's also not just when we're here together on Sunday mornings. That's what we have to offer to our city as well. We can speak God's word. We can proclaim it. And then we can pray for the Holy Spirit to do miraculous work 
in the lives of the people we encounter. Preach to the bones. Pray for the wind. Then I want to camp out just for the last couple minutes here on what I'm calling a word of hope. There's actually a couple of them here, a couple ways to see hope in this passage. And the first, I guess, really is sort of global to the whole of the passage. It's the simple affirmation that God brings life to dead things, that God can bring exiles back home. That's the kind of God you have. A God who can bring life in the midst of dead places, a God who can bring exiles back home. This image of death and life, it's not just used of Israel in the Bible, but in the New Testament, it's actually used to describe all of us spiritually. Ephesians chapter two, Paul says it this way. He says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The state of things spiritually for all of us apart from God is the valley of dry bones. That's a picture of us. That's our spiritual life apart from God. We're not merely sick and in need of some help. We don't just need a hand up. But we're dead apart from God, which means then our only hope is supernatural grace, God's saving grace. Again, Paul puts it this way. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God can bring life to dead places, to dead things. He does that in salvation, which means the gospel is not, right, what do I need to do to get right with God? But the gospel instead is what Jesus has done to bring life to places that don't have it. What Jesus has done to bring new life to dry bones. And this is hopeful. This is hopeful because you can't get worse off than dead, right? That's as bad as it gets. But if God can bring new life to those places, then there's nothing that can escape the power of his touch. If he can bring life to dead things, he can save you. He can invade your life no matter how far gone you feel, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. God can bring life. He can turn skeletons into a whole army of servants of the Lord. But it's not only in salvation that God works this way. Some of us are like Israel in that we believe, but we're in some kind of exile in our life. Remember, that's the context for the passage, right? Verse 11, Israel is in exile. They're carried off. To Babylon, they're saying our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. But even there is hope. Because at the end of verse 14, it says, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And you might think, well, wait a minute, he's going to place them in their own land. Hadn't they really sinned? Hadn't they deserved to be cut off? Didn't they deserve the exile? Actually, in the first 35 chapters or so of Ezekiel, He's been laboring to say that they do deserve it, right? They were idolaters. They were unjust. They ignored his word. They were in exile, and they deserved to be in exile. And yet God comes to them in his grace. And isn't that just what Jesus does? He comes to people who deserve to be cut off. God shows us his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you feel like your dry bones? Have you experienced something like exile? Friends, there's reason for hope because we have a God who raises the dead. 
We have a God who takes exiles and brings them home. And I want to think just for a moment about what this might mean for us when we talk about being put back together, knit back together as a a church for a moment, a gospel community. This series is meant to help rehabituate ourselves to the practices of being in community together. And we're going to talk about that a lot over the next, I don't know, eight, 10 weeks or whatever it is. But let me just read to you from an article in uh, Mockingbird magazine. It's a little piece that was just out maybe two weeks ago. It's called Why We're Not Going Back to Church. And I'm just read a little bit to you. The author says, for many people, going to church just doesn't seem practical. Since the early days of the pandemic, we have been channeling the spirit of Marie Kondo, mercilessly ridding our lives of clutter and excess. A year and a half later, and we're still in the business of extracting rather than adding to our lives. After all, if one ship is on the verge of sinking, the sensible thing to do is to throw things overboard in order to lighten the load. Keeping that family heirloom is nice, but it's not helping the boat stay above the water. Similarly, if we were only going to church for sentimental reasons to begin with, we may never go back. Author goes on, we have forgotten the urgency of our predicament. Again, I'm not talking about the virus as much as I'm talking about life itself. We have forgotten that we're already dead in our sin and that in Christ we've been made alive again. We have forgotten our need for our forgiveness to be proclaimed and received over and over and over again. As humans, we are forgetful beings. Thankfully, the structure of our Sunday worship service is mercifully built on the act of remembering They mean it as remembering, like recalling. But the other way works too, being put back together. Because every week they go on, we take the body and the blood as the memorial of our redemption. While Jesus' death on the cross was done once for all, his body and blood are meant to be taken as routine nourishment for whoever is hungry. Don't forget that I love you, Jesus tells us. Of course we will forget. But rest assured, he is there to remind us every first day of the week. We come to church to sink into the deep waters of God's love and die that we might be raised up any given Sunday. We live in the valley of dry bones. But we have a God who raises the dead. We experience what it means to be cut off in exile, but we have a God who brings the exiles home. And that's reason for hope. But there's also one other thing. There's a, what you might call a future hope that can transform the way that we labor with the difficulties, the sufferings, the trials, the hardships that we endure in life right now. There's a part right there at the very end of our passage, at the end of verse 14, it says, I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now think about that for a moment. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Didn't they already know that he was the Lord? I think they do, or at least they do to some extent. And so I understand this to mean that there is, uh, through their exile, through their rescue from exile, there's some kind of uh, more full knowledge. There's a richness in their knowledge of God that they would not have had had they not experienced the, es- uh, the exile and the rescue before. The exile, while not a good thing on its own, will somehow in God's purposes be caught up and transformed in God's resurrecting power so that somehow it leads to greater joy and greater glory. 
Now, you might think that that's a stretch, just getting that from verse 14. And maybe it would be if that's the only place that the Bible taught something like this. But think about what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you uh, go through our, been following our readings and prayers throughout the week, then this week you were reading the end of the book of Acts and you heard all about trial from Paul, pain, difficulty, affliction, right? We read about Paul being beaten and stoned and on trial and persecuted and shipwrecked. And this is the guy who writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, you might be in the midst of some affliction, some trial, some difficulty, some pain in your life, and you might be saying, and you might be asking, as many people ask me, why do I have to go through this? Why is God letting me endure this? Why do I have to be put through this? As I said, it's a question I get quite a bit. And the truth is, most of the time, I can't really give a good answer to that, at least historically. I don't know why God is letting you go through that. I mean, you do get stories in the Bible, like Joseph, for example, where he suffers great calamity, and then you see as the story unfolds, as you zoom out a little bit, that this had to happen so that this other thing could happen so that this other thing could happen, and then it all works out for good in the end. But for many of our stories... Many of our experiences, we never get that vantage point. So the question is, if you don't have that, where do you find hope? Well, I think we have hope in this notion that we have a God who raises the dead. We have a God who at the final resurrection somehow can even take the afflictions that we have and can change those into something like an eternal weight of glory that Paul says is beyond all comparison. Now, how does that work? I don't know, but here's what Dostoevsky says. I, I love how he puts it. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. You know what he's doing? Dostoevsky, who, by the way, had his own share of suffering, trial, affliction. He's looking out of the valley of dry bones and he's saying, can these bones live? Can the bones of this world can these bones live? And he looks at the resurrection. He looks at gospel hope and he says, oh yes, they can live. They will live because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he is the first fruits of a greater resurrection. That is, he's the beginning of God's resurrection power flowing into the world. And when Jesus Christ came to the disciples, you remember, he still had nail prints in his hands and in his feet. He still had the scar in his side. 
There's every reason to believe that when you and I, when we enter the kingdom of God, that your scars will be there too. But that won't be a sad thing because God's resurrecting power is going to triumph over all the evil and all the sin. So much so that even the bad things that you've done and the bad things that have been done to you will somehow be taken up in it and transformed into glory beyond all comparison. Maybe someday we'll all sit around and we'll all have our scars and we can look at them and realize to what degree it made God's glory and the joy of being in relationship to God all the better. And if that's true, what can't you face in this life? Your outer self may be wasting away, but your inner self can be renewed in the hope that there is an eternal weight of glory that is going to make whatever we suffer as bad as it is now, feel ultimately in light of eternity, light and momentary. And so Paul says, don't give up. Don't lose heart. And Ezekiel says, I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we need your help to navigate the Valley of Dry Bones. And I know for many in this room, that feels like a very real image right now. So we need your help to not give up. We need your help to not give in. We need your help uh, to believe and to know your resurrection power. Ezekiel 37 gave hope and strength to Israel when they were in exile. Would you do the same for us this morning? Would you give us hope and strength to press on and to press in to the gospel and to community with one another. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.